Well, this was a job I had um, worked hard to get. It was my first official job. I, I even went to the interview and I wore a tie. I was 16 years old and I was pretty excited. And uh, they hired me. And later the manager said, I hired you because you wore a tie. So any of you young people that are going to go interview, maybe you should consider dressing up a little bit. So um, I worked there for uh, several years. I was promoted. I became a night shift supervisor. And uh, I worked at Wendy's. And so uh, it was a high-paced, high active job. And, um, but it wasn't quite enough. I, I had extra time during the day because I did that in the evening. And so I got another job doing construction. So I would do construction in the day and then Wendy's in the evening. And, and my time was pretty full. Um, so I would get off at construction work, and then I would come into Wendy's, and I would change into their outfit. It was blue pants and, a, I don't remember, some sort of a button-up shirt. And uh, my construction clothes, I would leave them in the, in the back area, and I'd kind of tuck them underneath the table. Well, one day, uh, as, I was doing, as I was doing my job, uh, I went in the freezer. Thank you so much. I went in the freezer to get um, some French fries. And uh, you had to go through the refrigerator and then into the freezer. And, and I went in there to get something. I saw out of the corner of my eye something unusual. And I looked closer at it, and it, it, it was boots. It was construction boots. But they were the most unusual shape or visual experience I'd ever seen. They, they were covered in grease. And I began to look, and these were my boots. Someone had taken my boots from the, the uh, staff area, and they had brought them into the freezer, and they had poured grease all over my boots. I began to feel a rage well up in me. Have you ever been upset? Have you ever been angry? And I was, my mind was reeling as I came out of there, and uh, immediately, I know who did this. And I came storming out, came running down the hall, and I'll tell you in a minute what happened. <laughs> We're going to look at a serious topic tonight, the millennium and hell. And um, I told you yesterday that uh, I would tell you the population of hell. I would tell you the, um, the temperature of hell. And I'm going to throw in an added bonus. I'll tell you the relative humidity of hell. Are you ready? Okay. Here it is. Hell. The population is 1,009. There is a town in Michigan called Hell, Michigan, believe it or not. The temperature today at noon was 35 degrees. The relative humidity was 90, 92%. And believe it or not, here it is, Hell, Michigan, right there, near Ann Arbor. How do you like that? It even snows in hell. <laughs> a lot of concepts we have about hell. Um, sometimes... Ministers will use the idea of hell thinking, well, this is a great motive. We can scare people into heaven. I think maybe there's a better motive uh, for heaven than scaring people. So we're going to examine the subject of hell based on what the Bible has to, stay, has to say. But before we do, uh, we need to set a bit of a framework. We're going to go to Revelation 20 and look at it. But before we do, I want to review with you the second coming. Now, some of you weren't here on uh, Wednesday night when we covered this, so I want to just, we're just going to do a quick review. I'm going to go through a number of scriptures. So here we go. Are you ready? Daniel 12, 2 tells us, Those that sleep in the dust 
of the earth shall awake. Now, we've studied about sleeping in the dust. This is the state that we are in when we're dead. We're not floating around somewhere. We're not in heaven. We're asleep in the dust of the earth. Daniel 12, 2 says that some will awaken to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. We see a hint here that there's two resurrections, but more on that later. Revelation 1.7 says that this will be a tremendous scene, that Jesus is coming, and he's coming with the clouds. That's right. And every eye will see him. It'll be a tremendous coming. The clouds, every eye, there won't be a single person that will miss this on the earth. Every eye, the Bible says. And it will be dramatic. For as the lightning comes from the east and goes to the west and flashes across there, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we're told the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. And it's not just a little call. Hello, hello. We're told in Jeremiah, the Lord will roar and utter his voice from his holy habitation. He shall mightily roar upon his habitation. He will give a shout as they that tread the grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. So the scene is Jesus in his cloud, and he calls out with a mighty roar. And we're told in Isaiah, the dead men shall live, and the earth shall cast out their dead. Can you imagine being in a graveyard at the second coming? The earth will cast out their dead. I just can't wait to see that. Matthew 24, verse 31 says, He will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. He will blast this trumpet, and it will signal his angels that they are to go gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. We're told in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the dead in Christ will rise first. After they've come out of the ground, we'll see the angels take them up to the clouds, and then, joy of joys, we will join them there. Those which are alive and remain will be caught up together within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then we're told, even so them also which sleep in Jesus, God will bring with him. God will bring all those that slept in Jesus and even those that are alive. He will bring them, us with him to heaven. Praise God. Revelation 6 verse 14 gives us an insight that the earth is going to begin to fall apart at his second coming. And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together. And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth and the great men and the rich men and the chief captains and the mighty men and every bondman and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks and the mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand? Jeremiah talks about this day of wrath. And the slain of the Lord shall be at that day from one end of the earth even to the other end of the earth. They shall not be lamented, neither gathered, nor buried. buried. There shall be as dung upon the ground. In the beginning of Jeremiah, Jeremiah 4, verse 23, I beheld the earth, and lo, it was without form and void, and the heavens, and they had no light. I beheld the mountains, and lo, they trembled, and all the hills moved lightly. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the field, uh, all the birds of heaven were fled. I beheld, and lo, the fruitful place was a wilderness, and all the cities thereof were broken down at the presence of the Lord, and by his fierce anger. For thus says the Lord, the whole land shall be desolate, yet will I not make a full end. When Jesus comes the second time, it will be climactic. It will be something you will not miss. You will see it. Every eye will see it. The righteous will be taken to heaven and the wicked will be slain. The scripture clearly declares that the land will be desolate. 
desolate, with dead laying everywhere. With that scene in mind, come with me to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1. And we're told here, And I saw an angel come from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit. And a great chain was in his hand, and he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years, and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him, that he should deceive the nations no more, till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season." So it's pretty obvious that Satan cannot deceive anyone simply because they are dead. There is no human being alive for him to tempt. When we go down to verse 7, we see, And the thousand years are expired, and Satan shall be loosed out of his prison. This indicates that there will be another resurrection. We see that in verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now, it says that this mighty angel cast Satan into a bottomless pit. It's interesting, when you read that word in the Greek, it's the word abusos. Here it is, abusos. It's where we get the word abyss from. This is used in Jeremiah 4, verse 23. I beheld the earth. How was the earth when he beheld it? And lo, it was without form and void. This is the same description we see in Genesis 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void. Indeed, at the second coming, the destruction will be so great on this earth, it will return to its status before creation. The earth will be destroyed. Satan will be cast into this bottomless pit, this abyss. He has nowhere to go. He has no one to deceive. And he's here for a thousand years. Seems kind of fair to me. He's caused all of the pain and suffering this world has ever imagined. And God is going to give him a thousand years to contemplate. Was it worth it? Did you make the right choice? Are you satisfied with what you have done? So Revelation 20 and verse 5, But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrections. So we have... Two resurrections, one at the beginning of the thousand years where the saints are taken to heaven, and we have one at the end of the thousand years where the wicked are raised. So what happens to the righteous during this thousand-year period when there's no humans on this earth, they are in heaven, and Satan is down here contemplating his fate? What do the righteous do? Well, let's look in Revelation 20, verse 4. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them. And judgment was given to them. That's key. And I saw the souls of those that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus, for the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. They reigned. So they judged and they reigned. Verse 6 gives a little more insight. Blessed and holy is he that has part in the first resurrection. On, on such the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Paul knew scripture and he says in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 2, don't you know that the saints will judge the world? 
This is the period of time in which the saints will judge the world. Judgment will be given in their hand. Paul got this idea, not from his own mind, but from the book of Daniel. Daniel 7, verse 22, it says, Until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Judgment is given to the saints. Now, don't you think it's interesting? We're going to judge. But it seems that God has already done the judging. He's gone through the books as we saw the other night. He has decided who is righteous and who's wicked. What exactly is it that we're judging? Just want to remind you of the scripture we looked at the other evening about Abraham. When there was going to be a destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, <coughs> when he <coughs> excuse me, when he learned about this, his mind began to wonder. Is it possible that God made a mistake? And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? It was a legitimate question. He wondered this. Now, God has gone through the books as we have seen. The judgment began before Jesus came back the second time. The righteous have already been determined. So the angels in heaven would have seen God's judgment of this. They would have seen, yeah, this is fair. But have you and I seen that? We haven't seen the answer to those judgments. Um, and so we might have this question in our mind. Genesis 18, verse 25, That be far from you, God, to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? God is giving his people a thousand years to examine his records, to determine was he right? My mom's in heaven and I'm not there, she might wonder. Chris was such a nice boy. He usually did what I wanted him to. Chris worked hard. Why isn't Chris in heaven? Well, she'll be able to go and she'll be able to look at the records and she'll see, oh, 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 I see, I see. And then she will say the words in Revelation 16, verse 7, even so, Lord God Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. God wants our minds to be satisfied that he is fair, that he is right. He did not destroy any accidentally. Now I have a question for you about God's judgments. Are there any young people in here? Adriel, could you come up here for just a moment? Just a quick second. He's so nice. So Adriel, uh, he was hungry one day and you get hungry, right? Come on up, come on up here so everyone can say hi to you. Yeah, say hi to Adriel, he's such a nice guy. So Adriel, you were hungry one day and you slipped into the grocery store and your mother wasn't looking. And when you looked around, no one else was looking and you slipped some, pop, uh, some, some bubble gum. No, no, a Snickers bar. I like Snickers. You slipped a Snickers bar into your pocket. And then you went outside and you ate it. You stole it. I mean, you didn't really, but I'm just using a story. Um, and you stole it. Um, if God's judgments are, are righteous, then you would expect that Adrian... Adriel will be punished fairly for what he did, right? The punishment should fit the crime. Any parent knows this, right? So as a parent, I would, if I found out about that you had stolen your candy, you know what I would do? I would take you back in the store, and you would have to tell the owner of the store, I'm sorry, I took the Snickers. I should not have done it. I will pay it back. I'll pay for what I've done, right? Would that be a fair punishment? Right. So a fair punishment. Okay, Adriel, you can go sit down. Thank you. So, so God is going to 
punish us fairly. Now, he gives us this clarity in Revelation 16, verse 7. Humans will say, righteous and righteous are your judgments. Um, would it be fair if Adria was taken outside and I just began to just pound on him for two hours for a Snickers bar? Would that, would that punishment be equal to the crime? From our perspective, no. Humanly speaking, no, that's not a fair that's not a fair punishment. What if I was punching it on him for a week and, and he was just bruised and bleeding? And would that be fair? No, at some point, he would have paid for what he had done. At some point, it should, it should be equal to that. It goes from, from punishment now to abuse. And if I went beyond that, it would now be fiendish, evil wickedness. Now, sometimes Christians describe God in this manner where God is unfair in the way that he prescribes punishment. They will describe the punishment that God gives as sadistic and fiendish. We're going to examine what his punishment is really like. Revelation 20 and verse 5 describes that there will be a second resurrection, but the rest of the dead live not again until the thousand years were finished. So John 5, 29, Jesus says, those who have done good, they will... Uh, raised in the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there's two resurrections. The second resurrection is going to be the resurrection of condemnation. Now, after this second resurrection, so we have the first, at the beginning, we have the, the, the second coming. Jesus comes back. There's a thousand-year period. And then we have, and during that time, there's the judgment of the saints. And then the, after the end of the thousand years, there's the second resurrection. Now, at the second resurrection, these are going to come out of the grave and they will be wondering, what is it I've done? Why am I here? And God will make it very clear to them in some manner. We're told by Paul this interesting insight, Philippians 2 verse 10, that at the name of Jesus, every, name, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on the earth and of those under the earth. After the second resurrection, those who have been raised and were wicked, will realize God is fair in my punishment. He is fair. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now we see in Revelation 20, verse 7, and when the thousand years are expired, Satan will be loosed out of his prison. How is he loosed out of his prison? Well, there's the resurrection of the wicked. Now the wicked are there, and we see what happens in verse 8. And he shall go out to deceive the nations which are on the four quarters of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, the number of whom is the sand of the sea. Now Gog and Magog is not a reference to Russia or Moscow or any of that. It's just a reference to the enemies of God. Satan was going to go out and he's going to deceive them. And... Um, Okay, sorry. Lost my train of thought for just a second. Okay, so at this time, Satan is loosed from his prison because he is able to deceive the wicked. And then he convinces them, guys, it's for real. We can really take over the kingdom of God. Let's, let's get them. And so we're told in Revelation 20, verse 9, and they went up on the breadth of the earth and they compassed the camp of the saints about and the beloved city. So the city of God is here. How did the city of God get here? We're given an insight into that, into Revelation 21 and verse 
2, And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the New Jerusalem city had been in heaven, according to John, and it came down to this earth, and Satan and his hosts determined, we're going to take over God's government, we're going to take over and we're going to destroy them, and we're going to rule this world. And so they surrounded it. And then we're told that fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So now we're going to switch and we're going to talk about God's punishment of the wicked, hell. Now I have a question for you. Who's really in charge of hell? Most cartoons have a picture of Satan with a tail that's pointed and he's got a pitchfork and horns and he's kind of a goofy guy. But who's really in charge of hell? Revelation 1 verse 18 says of Jesus, I am he that lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and death. Jesus is the owner of punishment. He is the ruler of this world. It isn't Satan who's the ruler of hell. It is Jesus himself. Now, do you think Jesus is excited about initiating punishment on the wicked? Exodus 18, verse 32, God declares plainly, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord. So turn and live. So when is hell to take place? Is it something that's existing now in the depths of the earth or somewhere in Abraham's bosom? 2 Peter 3, verse 7 says, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. It's at that time there'll be destruction. There is no one burning in hell currently, according to the scripture. Now, Revelation uh, 20, verse 9 and 10 says, And fire came down from from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever. Now this word forever is sometimes thought to mean that God burns people in hell forever. Now this is what I was alluding to a moment ago with Adriel. It's not reasonable for God to punish someone forever. At some point, they should have paid for the crime. I mean, you could almost see Hitler, okay, if he burns forever, okay, okay. But, but not everyone is a Hitler. There are those who just simply said, you know what, I don't want God. I don't want to go to heaven. I don't want you, thank you. And, and they are not going to be in heaven. Would it be reasonable for God to burn them, not just one day, not just two days, not just a year, but 10 years and a hundred years and a million years and a trillion years and a billion years, forever burning and burning and burning. At some point, for heaven's sake, they've paid their punishment. Leave them alone. God is painted to be a fiend. A lot of it has to do with a misunderstanding of this word that we had just seen forever. Now, Jonah gives us an insight into what was really meant in the understanding, a biblical understanding of the word forever. Jonah says, I went down to the bottom of the mountains. The earth with her bars was about me forever. This was after he had been thrown into the sea and he was going down and seaweed was wrapping around his head. It felt like it was forever, but he was down there until he wasn't down there anymore. It meant until the completion of his time being there. Exodus 12 verse 14 about the Passover. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and you shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, and you shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Now, we don't keep the Passover feast anymore. Indeed, we're told that Christ is our Passover. 
we no longer keep the Passover feast. They were to keep the ordinance until it was complete. That's the idea of the word forever. Samuel's mother, Hannah, brought him uh, to the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. The scripture gives us an insight into what that forever actually means. Therefore also have I lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. Forever meant until he was done. As long as he lives. And then we're told about Sodom and Gomorrah. They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Let's read this in Jude 1.7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. So fire rained down from heaven on Sodom and Gomorrah, and the scripture clearly says this was eternal fire. So you would think if our understanding of eternal fire means that they are burning forever, then it's still burning. But what does the scripture say in 2 Peter 2, verse 6? And turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes. They were burned up. They are no longer burning. They became ashes. Eternal fire is fire from the eternal one. And its results are eternal. But it does not mean the individual is burned up forever and ever. Now, referring to Lucifer... Uh, God tells us this, I brought fire out from your midst, it consumed you, and I turned you to ashes on the earth in the sight of all who saw you. Lucifer would be turned into ashes. Now we read in, in Revelation here, 20 verse 9, fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. So the other day my wife sent me a lunch, and I was really hungry, and I forgive me, I devoured my lunch. It was gone when I finished eating. It was completely gone. That's what fire will do. Eternal fire will do to what God puts it upon. It will devour them. Um, now, Jesus says this scripture, uh, if your hand offends you, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed than having two hands Go into to go into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. So did Jesus, is Jesus saying the fire is not going to ever go out? It's going to continue to burn and burn and burn forever. What did he mean by this? Well, Malachi tells us about this, this very fire that God uses in the destruction. For behold, the day comes that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble, and the day that comes shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. So this fire will burn them up. There will be neither root nor branch. So I used to live in Zambia, and there they do things so um, primitive. Like, like I, we had to do some work, and I tried to find a backhoe. I couldn't find a backhoe in the entire country. They use shovels to do stuff. I just don't understand. And we had these stumps that were in the ground that we needed to get rid of. And so I hired some guys to come get rid of the stumps. They said, Chris, don't worry. We'll take care of it. There will be neither stump nor root when we are done. I says, okay, well, wonderful. Thank you very much. And so sure enough, they, they did the most interesting thing. They, they took the top of the stump and they hollowed it out just a little bit. And they built a fire beside it and they got it real hot. And then they took those coals and they put it on top of the stump. 
And they just let them sit there. And those coals smoldered and smoked. And that stump began to get shorter and shorter and shorter. And then it disappeared. But smoke still kept coming out. And it kept going in. And you would not believe it. But those coals burned every single root. They just followed it to the very end. Every root was gone. It's exactly what happens with God's fire. It says there will be neither root nor branch. Those coals were not quenched until they completed the work that they were to do. They burned it up. Now, Jeremiah 17 uses the same word quenched regarding fire about the gates in Jerusalem. But if you will not listen to me to hallow the Sabbath day and not to bear a burden, even entering in the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then will I kindle a fire in the gates thereof and it should devour the palaces of Jerusalem and it shall not be quenched. Now, Jerusalem was destroyed. There was a fire in the gates, but it is still not burning today. It accomplished what it was sent to do. Now, Jesus told a parable about the rich man and Lazarus. This is often a question that gets asked about, uh, about hell. And, and it's usually, this is usually, I've heard it from preachers, as though this is what hell is like. Like Jesus told this, this story so we can know exactly what hell is like. Now, the way I... I look at scripture, I like to take the plain statements of scripture for what they are. And then there's some parts of scripture that are hard to understand. Hmm. So I take the plain portions of scripture to help me understand the hard parts. But some people get it backwards. They take the hard part of scripture and they try to make the plain reading of the scripture fit that. I don't know. To me, it's clear what eternal torment is. This parable about rich, rich man and Lazarus doesn't really teach us that there's an eternal burning hell right now. Well, this is found in Luke chapter 16, verse 19. And I'm going to go through a few points with you why I don't believe that Jesus was trying to teach us about hell in this parable. In this parable. So number one, it is a parable. Now, Jesus told a number of parables. He told a parable about seeds. He told parables about sheep. And he told parables about coin. Now, Jesus wasn't trying to teach us that we are a seed, that we should climb into the ground and wait until we sprout. Okay, he was trying to teach us an important lesson. What is that lesson? That's what parables are for. You try to find out what is the lesson God is trying to teach. He also talked about sheep. He wasn't really trying to teach us that we have hooves and horns and we're kind of woolly. No, no, he had an important lesson about sheep. He also had a parable about coins. And he wasn't trying to teach us that we have metals somehow in us. No, he was trying to teach us an important, valuable lesson. And so this parable about the rich man in Lazarus is not trying to teach us about hell and, and a, a, you know, expository lesson on hell. He's trying to teach us a different lesson. So here's some points about this parable. Would a drop of water cool the tongue of a person burning in hell? No, it's alliteration. It's not going to do it. It's just, just trying to paint a picture. Does Abraham decide who is saved and who is lost? No. Will the people in heaven and in hell talk to each other? No. <laughs> and how really, how big is Abraham's bosom, right? I mean, it's paradise, a great gulf, and hell in this. Uh, no, uh, there's no way all of them are in Abraham's bosom. And if hell is in Abraham's bosom, and heaven is Abraham's bosom, where does Abraham go? Uh, no, the, the lesson here is not about this is an ex example of what hell is. Um, the lessons here are we should help the poor. God holds us accountable to do that. If one, one rose from the dead, um, that would not even convince the Jews. Interestingly enough, not too long from then, a man named Lazarus did raise from the dead, and they wanted to kill him too. 
And the word of God should convince us of what we should do. The word of God should give direction and clarity to our life. These are the lessons that are come from this parable. So what happens after fire comes from heaven and destroys the wicked? Revelation 21, verse 1. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. After God burns this entire world, and it becomes ash, he creates a new heaven and a new earth. Now, I find this interesting. In the book of Genesis 1, we see how God created this entire world in six literal days. Adam was the last creature created before Eve. The last, those are the last two. They never saw anything created, not one thing. They had to take by faith that God had created this. They had to trust his word in what he had done. But there will come a day when our faith will become sight, and we will be able to watch God create a new heaven and a new earth. I want to be a part of that. Now, what's interesting to me is that God doesn't remove our emotions. The Bible actually tells us that we will cry in heaven. It tells us in Revelation 21 and verse 4, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there will be death no more. We will be a part of this whole experience. A thousand years going through the records. At the end of it, we say, yeah, God, you're right. They didn't want to be here. They rejected you. They preferred their own wicked ways. You're right. And then judgment happens. They're destroyed. Your loved ones, your parents, your children, your spouse may not choose to be in heaven. The emotions you'll feel, the sorrow you'll feel, will be real. And God will hold us. He'll wipe our eyes. And I just imagine he will be crying too. So what difference does this make? What difference does it make if, if, hell is, if hell is forever or it's temporary? Our belief doesn't change really what it is. I mean, if I'm wrong and what I've shared tonight isn't correct, it will be what it will be. We will see clearly when it happens. My belief about it won't change the facts at all. It, it will happen when we arrive there. So what difference does it really make at this point in time? The only difference I could see it making, one of the differences I can see it making, is our view of God. If we see God as someone who torments people forever, is that really someone that we want to love? Could you see that as a God of love? I know someone that's rejected God because they had that view. Someone had told them God burns people forever. And in their minds, they said, that's not righteous. That's not just. You can't exist. And they threw him out of their mind. This idea of eternal torment, I feel, causes people to turn away from God. It doesn't encourage them to run to heaven. I think it's the wrong motivation. Number one. Number two, what difference does it make about the judgment? If the saints are there for a thousand years, what difference does it really make now about the judgment? Well, it can give us a 
kind of a peace of mind that God will let us see before he destroys everyone, he will let us see that, yes, he was right. He waits to do that until we are satisfied that his judgment was right. Can you imagine? The last thing Deacon Stephen would remember is, the, is this guy named Saul standing over while he's stoned. Then in the resurrection, he's so busy with angels and clouds and lightning, and, 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 and Stephen gets him to the cloud, and, and he's walking along, and, and he looks up and he sees, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> uh, Lord, did you make a right decision? That's Saul. And everyone's like, no, 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 that's Paul. No, 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 no. Hey, trust me, I know Saul when I see a Saul. <laughs> that's a Saul. Lord, did you make the right decision? There will be those that will wonder, Lord, is, is it right that they are here? Are you sure he did a right decision? And God is going to allow the judgment so that we could be satisfied. Yes, these are safe to save. And we could also be satisfied that if God destroyed someone we loved, he did not destroy the righteous with the wicked, but he only destroyed those who rejected them. Now, God says this will never happen again. The charges that were brought up against the character of God will be resolved in our minds and in the mind of the universe. And Nahum 1 verse 9 says, what, what do you devise against Jehovah? He will make a full end. Affliction shall not rise up the second time. Praise God, it will be done. Do you want to be a part of the first resurrection? Do you want to be a part of those who live in heaven for a thousand years? Do you want to be a part of the new Jerusalem? How we do it? 1 John 5 verse 12. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life.